0: Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson
1: and I'm Brian Bolt.
0: We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sport scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith.
1: Joining us today on Sport Faith Life is Graham Daniels. Graham really has done it all in UK football. He's played professionally, he's been a coach and a manager, and he's been a professional broadcaster for BBC Radio. Today, Graham is the director of football at Cambridge United Football Club in England. And perhaps more central to our conversation, Graham is also the general director for an organization called Christians in Sport. A vibrant ministry of over 40 years, which sets out to reach the world of sport for Christ. We got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started.
0: We're so excited to have Graham Daniels with us today. Graham, if you don't mind starting us off, tell us a little bit about sport in your life.
2: Well, maybe the main thing to say at the moment is that uh, I'm Welsh, and uh, the European soccer championships are going on, and Wales are the first team to get through to the last 16. Uh, as we record this. So that's the real big thing to know. Um, I, I grew up in Wales uh, as right through my childhood, and rugby was really the main thing in my growing up generation, not soccer. Um, so it was great heresy when I told my dad I wanted to be a soccer player at the age of about 15. Um, and that was the start for me, really, of my main sport. I played soccer uh, as a career uh, and then coached uh, and managed teams in my 30s and 40s. And I'm currently a director uh, of soccer at uh, a League One team, a third-tier team called Cambridge United.
0: That's great. Um, a, a rich soccer history, a rich football history. We appreciate you using the uh, the American lexicon here. We, we, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> hey, can you tell us a little bit about faith in your life?
2: Yeah, Um I'm 59 years of age, so I grew up in Wales in the late 60s and 70s. It would have been quite a high church-going population in my parents' generation, but by the time I was in my teens, it would have diminished quite sharply by the 70s. So not that many children would have been going to church in the 70s. And one day uh, I was picked for my school cricket team team, uh, I thought I was good, but I was actually picked because they were short of a guy because somebody got sick because they were about to board the bus to go to the game. So me thinking I was very good was only really me getting picked because I was the closest kid to school who could, could uh, get his uniform. But we went to the game. It was about 50 miles, and uh, we drove back from the game. I didn't do anything. I was just making up the numbers. But the captain was kind enough to sit by me. He was three years older than me, but I was the kid who lived near school. Um, he sat with me on the way there, on the way back. He was the best player. It was a Monday and he said to me, what did you do Saturday? I said, I played cricket. Of course. What did you do Sunday? Well, nothing, because it's a boring day. My mum and dad go to church, but I don't go anymore. So I reciprocated, what do you do at the weekend? What did you do Saturday? Cricket. What did you do Sunday? I went to church, but he was, you know, 18 years of age. I was 15 and he was the king of school in terms of sport. And I couldn't believe it. So I said, does your mother still make you still make you go to church i was a bit disappointed with him really and he said oh no no i go to church because i follow jesus and i thought to myself 45 miles to go until we get off this bus i'm trapped <laughs> it was the first time i met somebody of my own age or you know in my age group who was a not genuine christian believer christianity was nominal in my background and he knew the lord so for the next six years, really, when I was growing up and going off to play soccer and go to college and so on. Um, that guy kept in touch with me for six years. Uh, and I was converted at the age of 21 when I was a young professional footballer. So that's inspired me really all my life, uh, that one guy who was bold enough to say the simplest thing to a boy much younger than him changed a child's life because of the relationship of sport and faith. So great joy for me.
1: Wow, what a what a fascinating story. And it does uh, immediately uh, describe uh, what animates you now. Uh, It's just a it's really an interesting uh, single moment in life that extended into really a a lifetime and a career. I'd love to ask more about cricket and a little more about uh, your soccer, football life, and maybe even a little rugby. But I wonder if you could give us one thing that, you know, people expect all of that stuff. You you know, you are uh, in your particular role. People are going to know about sport and faith. What's one thing that people don't know about Graham Daniels that helps us get to know you? I speak Welsh.
2: Does that do anything there? I grew up. I grew up in a Welsh-speaking home, which when I was a kid was about 20% of the population. So uh, when I went to high school, uh, I was one of the very few kids who spoke Welsh. So I was educated. My classes were with Welsh kids. So English is my second language. That's that's unusual, right? Because you wouldn't have thought that from a Brit.
1: Wow. Well, that that is... Unexpected for sure. Uh, amazing. Uh, if you would prefer Chad and I switch to Welsh, we could go in that direction. But uh, let's just yeah. stick with English for now.
2: Well, I could speak Welsh for a moment or two, but you probably wouldn't follow me.
1: <laughs> uh, well, you, you would pull the wool over our eyes pretty quickly. We... Ours is a little rusty. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, the, the story you told about how you became a Christian was really tied to sport, and you've continued to connect those two worlds. Can you, can you just give us a little rundown of the work that you're doing now, or the work that you've been doing, that that uh, really brings those two worlds together?
2: Well, I think the world STEM. Uh, the whole thing stems from that story I told you about that guide school uh, and then when i was 21 and, and came to faith um an organization called Christians in sport it, it was 84 when i became a christian and the organization had been set up formally set up in 1980 so i was at training one day at my soccer team and uh, they called me from the reception uh, office at the training ground and said there's a really really well-spoken guy waiting in reception for you. Um, We weren't used to very well-spoken, well-to-do people at our little soccer club. So I went to reception to see him. And uh, he said to me, he was the founder of an organization, uh, Integrating Sport and Faith. And he'd heard that I was a Christian. I'd been a Christian about six months. Now, there are 90, there were, and still are 90 professional soccer clubs in uh, England, uh, four tiers 90 clubs and and he said to me did I know there were other Christians playing professional soccer now for six months every week when I'd gone to a game I'd ask people I knew at the other teams do you know anyone who's a Christian after a while I stopped asking that and said do, I, do you know anyone who goes to church because nobody knew a Christian so I thought this guy this guy's not from soccer culture at all he thinks he knows what he's talking about so I said no listen there aren't any And he said, oh, there are. And he was so authoritative. His name was Andrew Wingfield Digby. He was so authoritative. And uh, I said, oh, great. Well, now you're encouraging me. Uh, You must know what you're talking about, I'm thinking, because, you know, you speak with a bit of authority. He said, "Uh, yeah. I said, well, how many are there then? And he said, I'm thinking, you know, great, 20, 25, 30. He said, four. I said, four? He said, yeah, four. I said, well, who are they? And he named three. I said, well, who's the fourth? He said, you. (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was at that moment so that's a, that's really the story that captures what I what I think where you were taking me Brian I hope it was at that moment at 21 I thought to myself this is ridiculous how can there be 90 professional clubs and this guy set up an organization that's four years old and he knows three plus me who's going to tell the other guys in the 90 clubs what a guy told me on a on a bus on the way to a cricket game on the way off from a cricket game who can do this? So it really hasn't been a complex, you know, I'm a simple soul. It's not been complex. I'm, I'm wired up to play and coach and direct. And that's what I do. I met Christ at 21. I thought, well, somebody better get this organized. So that's it. That's a simple life, really.
0: So I'm going to ask you a question again here as a, as a former footballer, um, you know, part of what happens in professional sports is as you work your way up the ranks, um, there's pressures to conform, you know, because it's so, uh, there's so much, um, uh, there's so many people that want to reach the next level, right. To get up to the next tier of, of professional leagues. And so you wouldn't want to do anything to jeopardize your chances of, of working your way up. Of course, merit is, is important, but not the only thing that, that dictates who's mm. signed by which clubs. And so, was, did you ever feel pressures to, uh, because you were one of four, you know, were, were there pressures to, uh, to relieve yourself of the faith or to, to keep your faith more to yourself in order to try to work your way up? I'm just wondering how you navigated through some of that.
2: Well, the great privilege for me is meeting you two through the global conferences. And uh, I was persuaded at the ripe young age of 55 by Professor Andrew Parker to start asking those questions of myself from 35 years ago. So <laughs> I spent the last four or five years making very familiar things really strange to me uh, like this. <laughs> so yeah, a, a myriad stories, Chatter. Um The first day I came to faith, uh, like many extroverts, I need lots of time on my own to really gain energy. I'm really an introvert, but it switches the light on when I have to be in public somewhere. And um what had actually happened was um, I was in—I I was due to go out for a night out, as we'd call it in, in Britain, uh, out with the boys because we had no midweek soccer game. So I was due out really drinking and partying with the guys on a Tuesday night. And my dad had brought all my books, college books and school books from Wales when I'd moved to this new city to Cambridge, about 300 miles away. And amongst the books, he brought my school Bible. And because life as a full-time soccer player, as opposed to being a college part-time, which I had been at Cardiff City, I was now whole-time pro after graduating. So I had time on my hands. I was finished training every day at lunchtime. I was living in a room, spare room that I'd I'd rented. And I I started reading my Bible. Now over six months, I was reading the Bible. And I came to the point where I thought, oh, my gosh, this is true. This guy beat death. I've got a choice to make. And I was due on a night out on a Tuesday. And I got—I just thought I've got to become a Christian that day. I was reading the Bible, and I thought I've got to be a Christian. So I asked Christ into my life, not really sure what to do, but I just did. And the next day I went to work, <laughs> the, the, the day after, because we had the day off, hence the drinking on a Tuesday night. I went to work on Thursday. And I went in and, of course, the, the sort of joshing and, and making fun that goes on in sport. Where were you on Tuesday night? Dano was my nickname. Dano, where were you? Everybody was out. You were supposed to be there. You're too mean to spend money and all that. So I said, well, listen, I thought, mm, in for a penny, in for a pound. No, I, listen, I didn't come. And then I didn't know what to say. I, I thought I'd tell them about my faith. And the only words that came into my mind, because I had no vocabulary for it, was what the guy had said to me, going to the cricket, because I followed Jesus. I went to church because I followed Jesus. So I said, well, I didn't come because I followed Jesus. It's the first time I ever told anyone. And the whole locker room went quiet. You know, people having a cup of tea, reading the paper before training. And uh, the physiotherapist was called Pete. And somebody shouted to the physio's room, Pete, Pete. Get yourself out here. The pressure's got the Dano. His head's gone. His head's gone. (laughs) So it was my first ever venture into the public square as a Christian. Um, So, yeah, years and years of, uh, as we'd call it in England, banter. What do you call it? Phasing. Phasing? Hazing. Hazing. (laughs) Phasing.
1: Hazing.
2: Don't edit that.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, so pl- plenty of um, plenty of that along the way, uh, plenty of recordings of that. Uh, and this may be for later, but also, uh, not in my case, but uh, history has shown me plenty of evidence of bullying to conform, uh, real bullying to conform to locker room culture or coaching culture. But maybe that's another question.
1: Yeah, fascinating for sure, because you had a number of different societal forces one you had uh, just the uk in general right where you mm. said there was uh, you know no other 15 year olds you know mm. or knew or 18 year olds for that matter were going to church and certainly not saying they were going to church mm. and then you have the sport culture where uh, everybody uh, what you do is what you do you go out on the nights that you're free and you play hard on the days that uh, you have uh, matches. And so without question, you were you were faced with some outside influences uh, and you turned to uh, the Bible um, and started just reading on your own. I, and I'm just a, a little fascinated by that faith story, too. Uh, can I just ask you, what what was the role of prayer at that time in your life? Because. um you know, I look at the history really of Christians in sport and, and it famously sort of starts with people on their knees praying. And, mm. and uh, I, I would love to hear just sort of your process uh, just in, in mm. terms of being a growing Christian.
2: Well, if I contextualize my old experience of prayer in the early days, certainly I, I should tell you that maybe seven or eight years after I'd met the guy going to the cricket, uh, who told me he followed Jesus uh, when he was married some years later, maybe eight years later? His wife told me two things that he went home that night from the cricket, and his mum and dad uh, were Christians. His dad was a pastor, and they said, uh, How was the game today? And he said, uh, Yeah, it was okay. And they said, Okay, how many runs did you score in cricket? Hundreds, of, an amazing score, 190 something, anyway. How many wickets? five wickets, so big deal in cricket, good performance, very good. And his dad said, well, you don't look very happy. And he said, well, you know, you gave a sermon yesterday at church about sharing your faith as well as your the words of faith as well as the deeds of faith. Well, I realised have never told anybody, so I resolved I would tell somebody this week and then we picked up this kid uh, last minute to come to the cricket game. And I told him and I made a real mess of it. So I've given up. I'm not doing it again. So that's the sovereignty of God. Number two, he never told me these two things. His wife told me that uh, he prayed for me uh, every Saturday for the next six years, typical soccer day in this country. Saturday at 3 o'clock, he'd always stop what he was doing and pray for me that I might meet Christ. Uh, He nearly gave up just before I was converted. Now, of course, he didn't brag about Mm. that, but I've no doubt in God's great design, one, his courage to say something, with kn- mm-hmm. knocking knees and feeling a fool and then his prayer for those six years uh, led me to faith so i don't know how i can't really remember the early times of, of my prayer life but i remember when i heard that story it was a big boost for me in saying when you feel like you're hitting the wall here in professional sport when you feel that like really no one's interested just pray just keep praying for people. Mm. So I think in those early years, certainly in the 80s, when there were very few people I knew who came to faith, uh, prayer was really important. Uh, and then it was probably the 90s when we started to see more people coming to Christ, particularly in soccer at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, important as a model from a guy, a young guy before me, which inspired me onwards from there in my early years.
0: It's a really uh, fascinating tale. The as Brian said, and you have these examples of, uh, of of individuals speaking into your life in really memorable ways, and individuals Im- impacting you. And that's so much of what uh, uh, the biblical model is. That we have this this one that we try to model ourselves after the Savior, and 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 people who are Christians try to we, we try to do that for for others, right? That's part of the walk in faith as well. It's it's reading scripture, it's prayer, it's that. I wonder how much of that has um, that, that you feel like you've been on the other side of. So no doubt there are many reasons why you've stepped into the organization Christians in Sport and done the work that you have in professional football. Um, in, in what ways have you been able to be the one that's helped guide people along? And, and um, I'm not necessarily asking you to brag, although we would love if you would, because I'm sure there's plenty of stories uh, for you to share. But how do you see yourself on the other side of all that now?
2: Well, as I intimated earlier, um, it, I've been able to do, I, I hope I'm about to finish uh, a PhD before I get to 60. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've so far, I've loved pretty much every minute of this for the last four or five years, uh, because it's unpacked so many of the things that underpin my own experience in hindsight. Um, as I look back on those days with the lenses I'm wearing today, um, what I didn't have in those early days was a uh, peer group. There was no peer group gathering uh, in any form, shape or form for sports people. Uh, of course, I had access to mentors from a specialist organisation like Christians in Sport. Um, what I did have was an amazing local church, Um uh, I met a boy who'd been at my school, who was studying at Cambridge, who was doing his PhD at Cambridge. Uh, He was horrified when he saw me. I was walking, it's a tiny city, Cambridge. And a couple of months after being converted, I was walking uh, past the iconic King's College uh, after training one day. And I saw this chap who was obviously a very, very clever boy at school and so not in my set at, at all and not a sporty boy. And I was in the car with a friend. I jumped out of the car and I shouted this boy's name at the top of my voice because I remembered him as a Christian. So he was a Christian at school. Uh, and he wasn't ashamed to be a Christian, but, he, you know, he mm. was a nicest form of geek, really, because he a clever boy, physicist. So I shouted, Michael, Michael. And he turned around and I saw his face thinking, oh, it's that wretched football soccer player. So I <laughs> ran after him and said, Michael, um, are you still a Christian? I could see his face. And he said, yes. I said, well, I am too. And I could see he thought I was making fun, really, you know. He took me to church. And this amazing guy, who was prof of Old Testament at Cambridge, uh, suggested that on my day off on Wednesdays, typically in soccer, uh, I might go and have lunch with him. And he read the Bible with me for three of us every, every lunchtime on a Wednesday. So I was, I was sitting in, in the middle of Cambridge University every Wednesday, I mixed with my life playing soccer. So I think the reason for telling the story is that the local church, in hindsight, was a massive influencer on me. And I've noted that in the development of sport and faith and its integration amongst, certainly amongst the cohort of soccer players I've interviewed in this country, which, of course, I know them all. So that's the bias, isn't it? Um, But all of them tell tales Of the relief it was to go to church and meet people who didn't actually know anything about your sport, even the famous ones. And when people invited you to their home or children from Sunday school, parents inviting you to their home, they didn't freeze at the thought of saying yes to an invitation because people wanted to exploit their fame and get to know them and and have a vested interest in that. And the relief that the local church provided in our culture was enormous. So I got access to a great local church early on. I wasn't a famous Christian, of course, but uh, I was in a bang average soccer club. But I think peer groups in the 90s, we there emerged a number of peer groups for professional footballers in the major cities of our country. But we always encouraged people to find a great local church and we'd meet pastors who we'd know around a tiny country like ours, and ask the pastors to look after converted men in soccer. So peer group and church proved to be huge influences in, in the last 30 years, particularly from the 90s.
1: Yeah. And and uh, I guess I, I want to start asking questions a little bit about the model or the methodology mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. that we can get a little mm-hmm. uh, taste of how Christians in sport has evolved over time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, has learned from its successes and failures, for sure. Mm. Uh, you, you referenced the local church and the need mm. for the local church, and you referenced fame. And so I, I wonder, can can you just talk a little bit about how Christians in Sport, uh, as an organization, has dealt with those two issues, one being fame and, and athletes feeling very much like the you know the first, second, third, and fourth meeting from anyone, they have to be quite suspicious, right? Mm. That that their fame is being leveraged in some way, mm. um, and and then the idea of the the collaboration with local churches uh, and how that's gone.
2: Of mm. course, we obviously it's obvious to you, to and to many of the listeners, of course, that the. Uh, the Christianity in the UK, though, historically strong, is pretty weak, uh, numerically for sure. Um, So we face very few of the challenges of, say, you know, the observations of Frank Deford or uh, Shirl Hoffman. You know, that kind of culture doesn't exist here. On the other hand, uh, the the export of the American model of the post-war era Um, of evangelism and using elite players for evangelism. Of course, it was a successful uh, model around the world or certainly multiplied around the world and certainly was fundamental to Christians in sport in the early days. So the the work that began here in the 70s, which uh, touched on my life in the early 80s, hadn't yet reflected on the very challenge that you just described, Brian. And, uh, Certainly around those times in the 80s, a number of people, famous people in sport, five or six very famous people in sport, came to faith in Christ um, in different sports. And their testimonies were in the public arena very quickly indeed, within a couple of months, as it would have been those days on video. Um, And they were around my age, so I got to know them most of them, when their career was over, by the time their career was over, were not publicly, were not professing faith in Christ. Um, And to this day, none of those peers of mine are. Hmm. So that did cause me concern and worry because I was probably the only one who wasn't famous. They were famous and I knew them. So I think that's had a significant impact for good or bad, um, I've certainly received a lot of criticism uh, in leading Christians in sport, uh, particularly when I started around 2002, because I felt so strongly about it. I stopped using uh, the testimony of current athletes in the public arena uh, or their names on our websites and so on. Now, that may have been too harsh uh, a line to draw, but it it was born out of having observed what happens when you don't provide some kind of, pastoral framework for people of zero knowledge of the gospel when they come to faith, which was the case for these people. So let me just pause that then and come back to you. So it's influenced a lot of the work at Christians in Sport. And to this day, we're pretty reluctant to use our most famous people uh, in the public arena. And our first step is to get them into a peer group, the Christians in Sport meeting, and very quickly afterwards to identify a pastor in one of the cities or towns of our country who we know very well, uh, who know what we think these guys need. And of course, know better than us how to mentor them. So that's a typical trajectory when someone comes to faith.
0: So you talk about a community uh, sort of support development piece. That's really important in what's going on here. And that seems to fit with so many different ministry models, you know, outside of sport, especially. Hmm. Um, And yet, when we're dealing with specifically professional athletes, there's such transience sometimes, you know, you move from one club to the next, from one city to the next. Mm. How does that work when you're dealing with an athlete, let's say a professional footballer who is, who has has had a great experience with a local church, has a great peer group in for instance, let's say the greater London area and then all of a sudden is shipped off to a club, um, you know, in the in the Northwest or, mm-hmm. um, or something like that with a lot of that going on, how do you develop the, the community when players are moving so often, so regularly?
2: I, I think there's a, there's a few reasons why it's relatively uncomplicated to pull it off. Uh, the UK is tiny, smaller than most American States. So you, you, you can, you can know the big towns and big cities pretty easily. Um, secondly, In such a small country, because the work we do at Christians in Sport engages with universities as well, Uh, the major sporting universities, maybe 30 to 50 of them, you'll tend to know the strong churches of different denominations, the two or three churches in a city where the big soccer clubs are. And of course, thirdly, then you build relationships with pastors and churches and you begin to work out who really will look after an elite player when they move around the country. So given that you can get from east to west of the country in about four and a half hours, and from the tip of Scotland to the south of England, in your car in about 12 hours, it's not that complicated. Uh, it, you know, it's logistics. It's it's pretty straightforward, actually. But, but I think one additional point to that, I think it's fair to say we've worked hard within our own setting, to develop an ecclesiological approach that that grasps the the limitations of a parachurch work uh, and respects the the role of the local church in God's economy. And I do feel that combination uh, and knowing one's limitations as a parachurch specialist organisation is important in terms of biblical ecclesiology. And I do think there's a theological or ecclesiological foundation to that strategy as well, a determination to achieve it thus far anyway.
1: You know, I, I just want to pause here, Graham, and and get, I think some of our listeners are going to be quite familiar with Christians in Sport, and some are going to be hearing it for the first time. So I wonder if you could just give me a little sense of the scope. Um, how, how many folks are we talking that are doing this work? Uh, hmm. How many athletes are involved? Uh, does it go beyond athletes in these particular ways so just a a little general understanding of it if that would be really helpful yeah sure sure
2: well I'm not particularly thrilled you know to talk about Christians in sport I'm happy to answer that question of course but it's the work isn't it it's the big deal so uh, I'll scope it for you in a moment but Given the stories I've I've narrated to you about being 15 and 18 and 21 and so on, um, I could summarize it in three words, uh, pray, play, say. So we've used uh, Paul's summary of Colossians 4, 2 to 6, where he's explained the gospel, of course, early on, and then he's looked at Christian ethics and home and work and family. And as he comes to the summary of his whole approach, uh, we've captured Colossians 4, 2 to 6 as... Pray, play, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, verse five. So play on and off the field and say something of Christ. Uh, Pray, play, say. So the simple way of saying it is that we just encourage sports people at all ages and levels, competitive and elite sports people to pray for their teammates, to play in a way that honors Christ and to say something of him. Hmm. That is the work. Uh, In terms of formal structures, we're we're talking 40-odd staff, um, salaried staff, um, around 500 elite athletes uh, that we work with just over, I think, at the moment. But also working, I mean, it's all inherited from the States, right? You know, I came to see an FCA camp in 1992 or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. I came over to see an FCA camp. I thought, oh, my goodness, we could do that. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't quite as loud as the FCA camp because it was a football, like proper your football, not our football camp. So it was extremely loud, but we just exported that straight away uh, to, mm. to the UK through a guy called Steve Connor, who'd been involved at FCA uh, and played for the Bears in Chicago. Uh, so we took the camps idea and working with young people from there. We we looked at the types of university working on in the US and uh, mm. stole that idea. Uh, and we work with uh, the elite end of sport. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward. You know, it's a typical parachurch sports ministry paradigm. I think probably one more thing to say on it is that in during the watch the, of the last 30 or 40 years, the global growth of sport and ministry uh, has been timely for people like Christians in sport because. Our relationship, particularly with the States, has meant that along with the German sports ministry, we've been able to serve the advancement of sport and mission in Europe, in mainland Europe, and that's been a very exciting few years. Um, So we spend quite a lot of our time and money investing in work across the continent of Europe, but not setting up Christians in sport organization groups per se, but helping indigenous leaders uh, develop, paradigms that fit their own culture. So that takes up quite a bit of our time as as the years go by, but gladly so.
0: Hmm. So you alluded a little bit to um, the trends coming from the last couple of decades, and you're at the hmm. forefront of all this, uh, you know, serving in, in leadership of of a large parachurch organization doing sports ministry, uh, I'm curious what you see, especially now that you're you're getting into this uh, or the last four or five years that you've been doing your your PhD work. Um, what you see as as maybe what are the next what are the next few years what are the next what's the next decade go- going to look like? What are some trends here that we're going to see, or some some ways in which sport ministry is is evolving uh, in order to continue to to meet some of the needs that. That the sports industry has.
2: Oh well, I don't mean to blow smoke at you two, but uh, the strength of having had two global conferences, uh, and and having practitioners—you know—I was I was just starting some academic research uh, went with the first conference in York, and sitting in a room, seeing what it looked like to integrate practitioners and people who actually spend their time thinking below the surface of how sport and faith interact. I think that's where the, you know, that's the zeitgeist. That's where the action is. Uh, I, I feel in our own little corner of the garden here in the UK, we've always worked hard at trying to think biblically, have good theology of creation for redemption, restoration, trying to apply sport within a strong uh, cultural framework, uh, the cultural mandate, and not to exegete sport into the Bible. So those are things that have been quite, I hope, quite central to the the work here in this country. But in the words of a very famous uh, 20th century church leader in, in All Souls, Langham Place, London, John Stott, uh, he said that the, the work of the Christian minister is to have the Bible in one hand. And he said the London Times in the other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let's substitute for the Times, uh, the sports pages. And I, I, I certainly from where I'm sitting uh, in our own context, God willing, the next decade is about really getting under the surface, particularly of elite sport. Uh, in a whole period of time, when we're talking about the mental well being of athletes uh, and the nature of the pressures, particularly with social media, on people playing at the top end of sport, for us to actually truly grasp what findings there are, what data we have, what do we really know about the integration of a biblical worldview and sport? How do we talk to the governing bodies of sport intelligently in the public square? not just strong muscles on Bible and weak muscles on comprehension of the sports subculture. So really, uh, the last, the first two conferences, global conferences uh, have been a huge flip to the, to the work of Christians in sport and our perception of where we go from here.
1: Well, I don't know if there could be a better commercial for the, <laughs> uh, third global Congress on sport and Christianity right back in the UK, uh, uh, August 18 to 21, 2022, we're so excited to return to the UK uh, and we agree with you. We love uh, the integration of um, people that are on the ground all the time um, doing the work of sport, the coaches, the athletes, um, and then those that are that are pulled back maybe a layer away uh, doing research on sport. Uh, and, uh, that's what we try to do here at sport faith life is, is find those, find that space in the middle, uh, because there's such good information flowing in both directions. Uh, so really exciting stuff. I, I think just for my last question, I, I wonder you're a longtime footballer. Uh, you're, you're a coach. Um, you're, uh, you've been involved in sport all this time. I guess I'm just curious what, what's your relationship with sport now? You're starting to step back and you're looking at sport. Um, give us give us a sense as you're looking at this this thing right this we we've all been obsessed with it right it's been a a big part of our lives w- w- where are you now with with this whole idea of sport
2: well i've got a kind of rude answer which is whenever i look around and i've jumped out of the shower i see the scars <laughs> where i get new <laughs> hips <laughs> But that's not a very nice thought to finish a podcast with. Oh, Uh, boy. uh, So good thing this is just
1: audio, right?
2: Yeah, good. Thank (laughs) goodness for that. Five years ago, maybe, uh, I didn't feel any different. At 59, as I said earlier, I didn't feel any different to, to how I felt at 35. I was playing what we call vets, veterans soccer, which is over 35s. And I felt as good as ever. And then then the old injuries really bite. And mm-hmm. so a lot of surgeries uh, in the last few years on, on my lower body. But it fixed it. Uh, so Great. my best sport now is as boring as it could ever be, which is going for a walk. I had a colleague who hates sport uh, some years ago. And he said to me, here's a problem with all you sports people. All you ever talk about is activity and playing and matches and training. He says, here's the thing. Every sports person I know, once they're past 40, they're crocked. They can't even go for a walk. (laughs) He says, I just walked for 40 years. So uh, I'm walking. I walk. But my relationship is – well, before coming into the call uh, with you boys, uh, I talked to our sporting director at a third-tier soccer club, my third-tier soccer club here in Cambridge, Spoke spoke to our sporting director, who's 31 years of age, and our head coach, who's 34 years of age, second youngest in in professional soccer. Uh, between them, they got us promoted from the fourth to the third tier last season. My relationship with sport now is the pretty much unadulterated joy of knowing mm. young. In my case, of course, not. I don't work with young women particularly, but so I don't mean this in a non-female sense, but my work is with young men leading this men's professional soccer outfit, watching them flourish, helping them integrate their private and their public lives. Of course, some people are Christians, but many aren't still in our country. But it's that, it's getting to a point in life where you can invest in young men working in sport. I'm, I'm a long way from the players now, inevitably. Uh, so in day-to-day life, it'll be a combination of my own soccer club with that kind of personal relationship with good guys who are much better than I ever was. And secondly, in, in the work of sports ministry and the integration of Christians in sport to everyday life. Same, you know, men and male and female leaders in their 30s, increasingly running the work. I don't know, it's, it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling getting a little bit older uh, and finding people much better than you and having 30 years under your belt just to be in a conversation sometimes with them. It's great. I love it. I love it. I I hope to die doing this kind of thing, but uh, Mm. getting new hips on the other side of heaven.
1: Well, that's a fabulous way to end a podcast. That's, uh, (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much, Graham, for uh, spending a little time with us, uh, sharing your uh, rich history in this work uh, and in this play, but also, uh, you know, the wisdom of time and reflection. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just been awesome for us to hear that. Um, and, and really the authenticity of your story. It's, it's very encouraging. I think our, our listeners will certainly be encouraged by it. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us and just tell you to keep, keep walking on. Well, Brian and Chad, great
2: pleasure. And, uh, I'm looking forward to walking 500 yards to a conference to meet you in 18 months time.
1: <laughs> that is
2: the easiest (laughs) path to a global conference i've ever had you
1: you have one fantastic commute i i think that's good you are in the the catbird seat for sure (laughs) thank you great chatting to you both thank you very much indeed Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests. So you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.